Good evening. So again, I was just reflecting, coming over here, you know, as we move into the home stretch of this retreat, just how our time together feels even more precious these days. Just taking in what a, such a rare and precious opportunity it is to have all the different causes and conditions come together that we can take six weeks or three months out of our everyday lives and to spend our time training these unruly hearts and minds, that image of the wild elephant that I brought in this morning. Sometimes it feels like that. So I was reflecting on retreat and a theme that started to emerge was the theme of effort. And just in case any of your hearts kind of went, oh, when you heard that word effort, I'm going to frame it specifically, a specific aspect of effort. I'd like to explore effortless effort. Hopefully that sounds a little more appealing. (laughs) And this theme, exploration, started to emerge for me Back in September, I had an opportunity to do a month of my own practice. So when I first started teaching, one of my mentors, who's a monk in the Mahasi tradition, he asked me to make a commitment to do at least a month of my own retreat every year. And so far, I've not been able to keep that commitment. And this year, actually for the second year, I was supported by some friends who let me use their rammed earth cottage in a small hidden valley just outside of Auckland. And this uh, cottage was surrounded by native forest or native bush, as we call it. And for most of the time while I was on that retreat, the soundtrack was just native birds. So all through the day, these birds called tui, who are iridescent black, blue songbirds, have an amazingly melodious call. And I would go out walking, and then these little fantails, pee would flit all around me, catching insects. And then from time to time, the native wood pigeons, the kereru, would come crashing into the puriri trees. As these trees have bright pink berries, and the birds feast on them, they get so fat they can hardly fly. <laughs> so they're not so elegant, but they're still amusing to watch. And at night, the ruru, the owls, would call to each other up and down the valley. So it was pretty quiet, pretty idyllic. And the place there had no clocks, and I had no schedule. I left my watch behind. So towards the end, I was just waking up when I woke up. I ate when I felt hungry. I slept when I was ready to sleep. And I really had no idea of clock time. I had a vague sense from the sun in the sky. And maybe those of you who spend time in the outdoors, maybe camping or hiking, sailing or kayaking, you've probably had similar experiences of what's it like to just be more living in more attunement with the natural rhythms of life. And it just felt so nourishing and restorative. And it also made me realize just how out of sync my everyday life is from that kind of rhythm. And it made me think of how in agriculture, it used to be standard practice that 
once a field had been harvested, that field would be left to lie fallow. And so the fallow field would just sit for a season, maybe two, to let the soil rest, let the soil recover and regenerate. And then after that period, the field would be much more fertile. And in some ways, I'm thinking of retreat as being like lying fallow. We give our whole being time to deeply rest and recover and regenerate so that afterwards we have more energy, more calm, more clarity, more kindness towards ourselves and towards others. But I think you will know from your own experience, in society generally, just like in agriculture, we have lost our patience for fallow time. We have no tolerance for non-doing no tolerance for just being. It feels more and more like our relentless obsession with productivity to that mindset. A fallow field is just a waste of space and quiet time is just a waste of time. And this conditioning can run pretty deep. So it's not surprising if some of that conditioning might come into might shape our attitudes and the beliefs that we have in our time on retreat. So as Brian pointed out in his talk the other night, we often do come with expectations that are pretty antithetical to what we're actually doing here. It's not so easy to accept that we're not going to have anything tangible to show for our time. I think most of you know there won't be any certificates of attainment. (laughs) There won't be any higher qualifications given out. There won't be any awards or trophies, not even for the most improved meditator. (laughs) So we really will have nothing at all to show for all of our diligent efforts here, at least nothing that's measurable or quantifiable in ordinary ways, definitely nothing that can be assigned a dollar value. So in some ways, what we're doing here is reclaiming the value of lying fallow, letting go of being productive, letting go of getting, of having, of becoming anything at all. So just to play with that idea of fallowing a little bit, I thought through this talk, I'll give us a few moments from time to time of silence. And then you can see for yourself how does the heart-mind respond in those short phases of silence. Does it settle into the quiet? Or does it perhaps get agitated or bored or frustrated? Well, just play with that. So right now, just for a moment, an opportunity to experience lying fallow. So I wanted to bring in this invitation to practice resting, or you could say to explore resting as practice. Because at this stage in the retreat, I think for most people there's a shift in the amount of effort that's needed to maintain our momentum. 
The hindrances, generally speaking, they aren't as dominant as they probably were earlier in the retreat. And instead, more skillful states start to become more available. States like the four Brahmavihara, heart qualities, and the seven awakening factors. So to be clear, I'm talking in generalizations here. So don't panic if you're not yet consistently resting in deep samadhi. (laughs) There may still be a few multiple hindrance attacks coming up from time to time. But I think it's fair to say that overall, the skillful states are getting stronger. So the best thing we can do is trust that process and not interfere in it. And this is actually the refinement of right effort. We've mentioned right effort a few times already, so just quickly, in the context of the Noble Eightfold Path, right effort has these four aspects to it. The first two are about working with afflictive states, such as the hindrances. And so then the effort is to prevent the hindrances from coming up, but if they have, to help them release. And then the next two aspects are about working with skillful states. So here the effort is to help skillful states to arise. And when they have arisen, quote, not to let them fade away, to bring them to greater growth, to the full perfection of development. So this is the aspect of right effort I'd like to focus on tonight. And I like to emphasize it because, again, it runs counter to so much of our conditioning. When we just hear this term, right effort, without any deeper exploration, it can sound like it's just blood, sweat, and tears, which is how I used to approach this term when I first practiced. And I had this deeply unconscious assumption that if I wasn't applying maximum force the whole time, then I wasn't doing it right not trying hard enough, not making any progress. So hopefully by now you recognize that's in the terrain of the inner tyrant. But the Buddha was very clear about the need for effort that's responsive to the actual conditions we're working with. So when the mind is in these more skillful terrains, the amount of effort that's required there is actually very light. There's a famous sutta or discourse where the Buddha describes how he paid attention to his thoughts and he discerned whether those thoughts were on the one hand harmful or on the other harmless. And when he saw thoughts in his mind that were harmful, in other words, based in sense desire, in ill will, in cruelty, he made the effort to restrain those thoughts. And he compared this process to a cowherd taking care of his cows, making sure that they couldn't damage the crops. So here's the actual description from the sutta. It says, Just as in the last month of the rains, in the autumn season when the crops are ripening, a cowherd would look after his cows. He would tap and poke and check and curb them with a stick on this side and that. Why is that? because he sees flogging or imprisonment or a fine or public censure if he were to let his cows wander into the crops. In the same way, I saw in unskillful qualities, drawbacks and degradation. 
So he's talking about when the thoughts are in unskillful territory, we need to put some effort into restraining them. But he goes on to describe how once those uh, harmful thoughts had been released, he discerned that thinking imbued with harmlessness has arisen in me, and that leads neither to my own affliction, nor to the affliction of others, nor to the affliction of both. It fosters discernment, promotes lack of vexation, and leads to unbinding, in other words, nibbana. So once the unskillful states have gone, skillful thoughts come in. But this is the interesting part, to me at least. The Buddha recognized that even skillful thoughts take energy. He said, if I were to think and ponder in line with that, even for a night, even for a day, even for a day and a night, I do not envisage any danger that would come from it, except that thinking and pondering a long time would tire the body. When the body is tired, the mind is disturbed, and a disturbed mind is far from concentration. So I steadied my mind right within, settled, unified, and concentrated it. Why is that? So that my mind would not be disturbed. So this is a pretty refined effort here, the effort to let go even of skillful thinking, so that the mind can rest deeply, rest undisturbed. And just to bring the point home, he comes back to the cowherd analogy. And this time, the cowherd doesn't actually have to do much at all. It says, just as in the last month of the hot season, when all the crops have been gathered into the village, a cowherd would look after his cows. While resting under the shade of a tree or out in the open, He simply keeps himself mindful of these cows. In the same way, I simply kept myself mindful of these mental qualities. So too, there was need need for me only to be mindful that these states were there. So what I like about that analogy is that it's just just enough to note these cows, these cows... And sometimes in my own practice on retreat, I'll recognize just cows, just thoughts going through the mind. I don't have to prod and poke and tap them, just settle back like the cow herd, no longer micromanaging, just resting and recognizing cows. So you might settle another couple of moments of silence. Maybe noticing those cows. So in some ways, at this stage of the practice, the quality of effort that's being invited here is similar to what in the Zen tradition is referred to as effortless effort. Effortless effort. Now, I'm not a Zen practitioner. I've only done a little bit of practice in that tradition. But 
even at face value on a surface level, there's something about that phrase, effortless effort, that made me sit up and take notice. It sounds like a paradox, as quite a few Zen sayings do. So I'd like to just start by sharing some reflections on what this might mean from the Reverend Daisui McPhillamy, who's a member of the Order of Buddhist Contemplatives. He says, this situation is actually not as much of a paradox as it seems because there are different sorts of effort. The one which we're used to is the one in which we, in quotation marks, are in control. We have a goal or ideal and we direct our behavior in ways that we think will achieve it. There are difficulties with this in several places. There's really no me in the first place. Secondly, goals and ideals may be nice thoughts, but they are lousy descriptions of how the world really works. The same is true for my ideas about what will achieve change. And finally, whatever we may be, we don't seem to be wise enough to direct or control a life. With all of these difficulties, is it any wonder that our attempts to, quote, reform ourselves generally end up somewhere other than where we'd hoped they would? So you could say that's the conventional understanding of effort. And I think we've spoken a few times about how that tendency to approach this path as a kind of a self-improvement project generally doesn't work that well. Even so, I think most of us need to come to that realization for ourselves before we recognize some other approach is needed. And this is how the Reverend Daizui describes the alternative. He says, but there's another type of effort entirely. It's more willingness than will. It is the willingness to let go of things moment by moment. Let go of ideas, opinions, wants, fears, ideals, judgments, everything. It is the willingness at all times to learn, to be open to seeing new ways, as Dogen Zenji put it, to be disturbed by the truth. This, then, is the effortless effort. No I is involved. No ideals, no thinking or planning of how, no control, no direction. So I think of this as being a shift from what I call will-driven practice to dharma-driven practice. And by will-driven practice, I mean that tendency for all the efforts we make here to keep referring back to a sense of me who's doing it all. The me who needs to continuously coach and critique and micromanage the me who's hyper-responsible for getting rid of that and getting more of this, and the me who's always measuring and assessing and trying to prove itself. Again, the inner tyrant that I spoke of the other week. In contrast to all of that, what I'm calling dharma-driven practice is what happens when that me-centeredness starts to soften and let go, at least to some extent, So then the Dharma can move through us unimpeded. And actually the word Dharma-driven, the driven part isn't quite right. 
because this approach, it doesn't have any sense of pushing or forcing, but I haven't yet found a better term. But still, I think you might get a sense of a distinction between will-driven and dharma-driven. So again, just a moment to let that settle. So just coming back to this seeming paradox of effortless effort, I found that phrase so helpful just to reveal where and when and how my practice was becoming effortful rather than effortless. And pretty much whenever I investigated where that effortfulness was coming from, the culprit was always some sense of me doing my practice to get what I wanted. In other words, there was some solidification into a fixed sense of self, which, as you know, is one of the fundamental distortions of perception that Bante and others have spoken about. So the antidote to that distortion of perception is insight into the third of the three universal characteristics. Our friend Anatta not-self, or non-self, as Bante calls it. Whatever we call it, anatta, not-self, non-self, no-self, this term is still pretty confusing for a lot of people, and yet it's also profoundly liberating. And in fact, without some experiential understanding of not-self, it's pretty difficult to access effortless effort and these more refined stages of the practice. So before we go any further, I'd like to just say a little bit about how we might approach anatta, not self, as an actual practice rather than as a concept to wrestle with. And again, this translation into English of anatta as not self or non-self or no self I think to most people those terms sound pretty negative, pretty unappealing, incomprehensible even. And so they tend to, for many people, get ourselves all tied up in knots trying to make sense of the idea of what this is pointing to. But actually right there is part of the problem. We can't think our way into this insight. Because the understanding of not-self comes from a more intuitive wisdom. It's an embodied, direct experience rather than an intellectual idea to be conjured up, conceived of. And there's a second problem that comes from confusion about what the term self is pointing to. So in Western psychology, it's desirable to have a healthy sense of self. So when we hear this term not-self, it might sound as if the Buddha is asking us to somehow negate that. 
And it was supposed to try and become a nobody, a non-entity, a kind of colorless, characterless being with no individuality or expressiveness. But this is not at all what the Buddha was asking us to do. It may sound a little contradictory, but actually insight into not-self improves a healthy sense of self. So what was and is pretty radical about the Buddha's teaching is that through his own direct experience, he recognized that this sense of self that we usually just unconsciously assume is fixed and solid and permanent, just who I am. It's actually a construct that our minds create out of the ever-changing flow of sensations and sense impressions and feeling tones and perceptions, mental concepts. Our mind takes the flow of all of that data and concocts, constructs a character called me who dwells at the center of it all. Now, maybe on an intellectual level, we can have some understanding of the truth of that. We can understand that physical sensations and feeling tones and sense contacts and so on are all constantly changing. But on another level, sort of a felt sense level below that, there's still this innate feeling of, but this is me, this is who I am. And that is just a natural part of being human. We're not trying to deny that. It's common sense. I'm me, I'm not you. We all have different life stories, different conditioning, different personalities. The subtlety of the Buddha's teaching is that it's inviting us to look at where we cling to that sense of me because it's the clinging that creates the problems. To the extent that we take this sense of me to be solid and fixed and permanent and real, to that same extent it causes dukkha, suffering. Because that small sense of self has to be constantly shored up and reinforced and defended and enhanced and placated. And all of that unnecessary extra mental effort is pretty exhausting. Now still, we're not trying to make the self-constructing process wrong or bad. We're not trying to somehow annihilate a sense of self, but to change our relationship to it, to see it with insight for what it actually is. But it's not surprising that many people unconsciously still believe that not-self is about negating self. Because that very term, not-self, it has a binary in it of apparently opposites. It sets up a duality. And then it can seem like the goal of practice is to get rid of itself. The self is supposed to get rid of itself so that it can stop all that selfing and instead become a better (laughs) not-self. Which is, as you can hear, a bit like a dog chasing its tail. And it just tends to tie us up in more and more intellectual knots. So in my own practice, instead of thinking of not-self in terms of an oppositional binary... I found it more useful to think of it as a continuum or a spectrum. So if you think of a spectrum between two poles, at one pole, at one end of the spectrum, we can put the experience of having a strongly activated sense of self. And then at the other end of the spectrum, the other pole, 
is the experience of having a quieter, less activated sense of self. And then we can practice noticing at any point in time where we are along that spectrum. Because as we'll see, the sense of self is not nearly as fixed and solid and unchanging as we usually think. In fact, it's constantly changing in response to conditions, in response to circumstances. So let's take a quick look at the end of the spectrum where the sense of self is more strongly activated. So as, as an example, you might think of a time when you got angry or defensive or convinced you were right in some way. Anyone not able to think of an example? <laughs> If not, that's fine. You're just at the other end of the spectrum, and we'll come to that soon. But if you can think of an example like that, just sort of bring it to mind now. And I'm guessing that even as you just touch in again to that experience of getting angry or defensive or self-righteous, there's probably a feeling of stiffening, tightening, bracing, rigidity, narrowing, maybe a sense of limitation in the body, in the mind, and it's probably pretty unpleasant overall. Does that sound accurate? Yes? Yeah. So that's the kind of uh, reference point for the sense of self being strongly activated. Then on the other end of the continuum... This one may be a little harder to access because it's a little more subtle. See if you can think of a time when you were just simply present with the ever-changing flow of experience. Maybe it was during a pretty clear meditation sitting. Or maybe it was a time when you were out walking in the forest, possibly while you were watching the sunset. Or maybe back in your everyday life, listening to music or dancing or playing sports. So if you can think of an example of that kind of experience, if we could kind of freeze frame it and slow it down, you might find that that sense of flow comes with feelings of being deeply at ease and open and light. There's a sense of spaciousness, spontaneity, openness to new possibilities. And energetically, that experience feels pretty different from being at the strong sense self, the strong self end of the continuum. So do you have a sense of that? These energetically, these two poles and how different they feel? So even right now you might tune in and see if you can recognize how strong is your sense of self in this moment? How identified are you? with what you're experiencing now? Is there a kind of solidifying into a fixed sense of someone who's sitting here listening? So I'm suggesting just to be curious through the day, to notice those times when the sense of self is more activated, those times when it's more quiet and in the background. Because as we get used to recognizing this, it gets easier to notice when we are caught in identification. And the dukkha of that, the suffering of it, becomes obvious. And then we naturally want it to help it to release. 
Conversely, when we notice what it's like when there's less identification, when the sense of self is less strongly activated, the relative ease and uh, spaciousness and peace becomes obvious, and we naturally want to stay there. So it's just an invitation through the day to notice all of that. And hopefully in this exploration you're starting to recognize some of the ways that even our meditation practice itself, our Dharma practice, can be misused to feed into this process of self-construction. And that can be a feedback sign too. If you start to notice a more effortful, effortful kind of effort creeping into what you're doing here, that might be an opportunity to stop and to check in and to see, is there some way that you're appropriating the practice? Are you taking what's not actually yours, making it all about you, trying to control it, trying to push it along with that more will-driven effort? So again, just a moment or two to let the words settle a little. And maybe to sense how is the self now? As we get more used to not identifying with our experience, the hindrances of greed and aversion and sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry and doubt and all those other sort of frenemies that they tend not to stick around for nearly as long. However, when they first disappear, even if it's just for a few minutes at a time, for some people this can take some getting used to. Yes, the hindrances are deeply unpleasant, but at least they give us something to do. So when they start to be less predominant, sometimes we're like, well, now what? Nothing's happening. can even feel like we've totally lost our mindfulness because we can't even say what we're aware of anymore. And sometimes this is because the coarser mind states, like the hindrances, have fallen away but our mindfulness isn't yet quite refined enough to notice the more subtle states. And so sometimes people come into practice meetings and they say, nothing's happening, nothing at all. What am I supposed to do now? But when I ask them to describe more clearly what they mean by nothing, often they can recognize that actually there's quite a few skillful states in that so-called nothing. There's often qualities of, say, calm and steadiness and clarity, openness, equanimity, ease, acceptance, and so on. And still, these more refined states, they can be a kind of an acquired taste. And this phase of the practice can start to reveal some of the ways that we may be unconsciously addicted to the drama of practice, to the highs and to the lows. 
because those dramas reinforce a solid sense of me at the center of all of that drama. We may also be secretly searching for some big special experience that we can report back to our friends and sangha members. We may be searching, chasing after catharsis of some kind, craving an intense release. And sometimes there's a kind of fear of this quieter and more balanced and more nuanced range of experiences. So sometimes when people find themselves in that more stable and quiet phase, they start to try to get that familiar intensity back again by pushing and forcing and striving and going back into the more will-driven practice. So it's another training. We need to train ourselves to stay steady, to stay steady with the experience of the mind that's at least temporarily free of the hindrances. The absence of these difficult mind states may not last very long, but it still helps to loosen some of our so-called karmic knots. And Again, Rebecca spoke of these the other day. Those deeply conditioned patterns, deeply identified with stories that often we spend so much time and energy wrestling with. And in the quiet and the calm and the kind of fallow states, the loosening of the knots can feel more like unraveling, maybe at times even completely falling apart. And this is because our usual defense mechanisms and our familiar personality habits and our self-protection strategies are starting to dissolve and we find ourselves on shaky ground. And I've noticed in my own practice that where after one of those phases, there's sometimes a kind of an internal backlash to all this newfound spaciousness. And one symptom of this is the mind suddenly kicking up into overdrive and telling all kinds of ridiculous stories and getting lost in full-blown fantasies and creating imaginary doomsday scenarios, almost trying to sabotage this shift into a more open way of being. So this phase of the practice can be quite uncomfortable at times. And I found it helpful to think of it as a phase of transition, almost like being an adolescent again, or maybe more poetically, more like the metamorphosis of a caterpillar transforming into a butterfly. Apparently when the um, caterpillar is in its chrysalis, there's a stage where it just dissolves into this kind of soup and then gradually reforms into the form of a butterfly. And then when it first comes out of those tight cocoon, it has to rest to let the soft structure of its wings harden before it can fly. And we might have a sense of this kind of transition sometimes on retreat. There's times where there feels to be more shakiness or groundlessness or fear So if any of you are in those phases or touch into those phases, the best thing we can do then is to offer ourselves immense patience, immense kindness, immense compassion, together with trust. Trust that everything we're experiencing is part of a natural unfolding of this practice. 
So a few years ago now, I had a, one of those more groundless phases during a six-week retreat uh, at the Forest Refuge. And I was fortunate the teachers were Joseph Goldstein and Caroline Jones because Joseph was focusing on anatta or not-self and Caroline was focusing on the Brahma-Vihara. And it was a powerful combination. And a few weeks into that retreat, I felt like there was a shift into this more effortless effort. And there was some momentum that developed. And I started to clearly see wherever there was even slight holding on or clinging or resisting or grasping. And it was just a natural letting go, letting go. But at some point, a wave of fear kicked in. And I suddenly moved from that more open, spacious, not-self end of the spectrum back to the more strongly identified end. Fortunately, there was still enough awareness that I could recognize what was happening. And I just spontaneously started to think of all the people I knew who had probably experienced similar fear along the way. And I imagined those people walking alongside me. So people that I knew, like some of my teachers and Dharma friends, but also people I didn't know. Brian spoke of this the other night. I had a sense of just this stream of beings who've been walking this path since the time of the Buddha. And over those centuries, I thought, all of those people, they probably also experienced times of uncertainty and doubt and groundlessness and fear, but they kept going and they came out the other side in good shape and in some way contributed to me being able to do the same. So I imagine this stream of beings in the walking room with me at the Forest Refuge and yet still at one point this doubt question came back into my mind. But if I just keep letting go and letting go and letting go, what's that going to leave? And in a moment, in that moment, the spontaneous answer came up as love. And intuitively, this made sense to me in a whole new way. I understood that anatta or not-self is not about becoming a nobody or being annihilated as I'd unconsciously feared. Instead, when we can reduce the amount of space that's taken up in our psyches by this solid sense of self, there's literally more room in there for the Brahma-Vihara heart qualities to strengthen and to grow. So coming back to where I started with the metaphor of the fallow field, perhaps for some of you it might seem like there's nothing going on during this retreat. But below the surface of the soil, a powerful process is happening. The soil is regenerating itself, being replenished and revitalized, and all the seeds within it are getting ready to sprout whenever the conditions are right. The challenge is that we don't know when those seeds might sprout. As I mentioned last week, there's something in us that deeply dislikes uncertainty. So it can take a lot of trust to counter that need to know and instead have faith that something very powerful is happening here, even if at this point we can't say exactly what that is. 
what we can do is keep settling back. Let the process unfold, unfurl, ripen, mature, and trust that at some point all of this effortless effort will bear fruit. And that fruit will be a great gift, not only to ourselves, but to everyone around us too. So let's just take a last few moments to fallow and to let the words settle. Thank you for listening. time now for walking and then I'll be back at nine for chanting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.